0: Welcome to Daring Daring 2, a podcast that finds out how CEOs and entrepreneurs navigate today's business world, the conventions they're breaking, the challenges they've faced, and the decisions that they've made. And lastly, just what makes them different. Well, hi, listeners, and welcome to Daring 2. And today joining me on the podcast, I've got a really interesting guest. Can't wait to get started talking to uh, Bob Tinker he is a, a serial entrepreneur three-time entrepreneur grew one had one of the fastest growing technology companies in the world believe it or not which was ranked number 1 by Deloitte in their Fast 500 index it was a company that was uh, focused on mobile security called Mobile Iron that was the last of one of his ventures which eventually um, was IPO'd which started with like three people can you imagine three people and then it became 150 billion a million dollar company of revenue, right? So, I mean, that's pretty amazing. But that's not just the first venture that he's had. He's been very successful as an entrepreneur. So, we're going to have lots of questions. He's had written two books, both of which um, I have found riveting. One is called Survival to Thrival, and the other is Change or Be Changed. Now, Bob, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Rita. Great to be here.
0: So, listen, let's like, let's, dive into it right because I did read yes. the, the book change to be changed and I'm like here's a guy that is like a serial entrepreneur a successful entrepreneur but he describes the entrepreneurial journey in like a really interesting way you talk about it aging the soul that you know it's like it's it's like can be lonely that it's you know when you first start out the first thing that you really focusing on is making sure that you don't die as a business. But yet within that, you also conjure up this amazing view of what it feels like when you grow a company to success and talk about like just the amount of self-awareness and personal growth that you get as an entrepreneur. And that while the journey might be hard, it sounds absolutely exhilarating. So I kind of juxtaposed all of those like emotions and feelings and go, wow, tell me what it's like that made you, I mean, that's probably why you decided to write the book, right? But did you start out going as a young kid going, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. That's what I'm going to be. I can tell that even though I can think it's going to be painful, I'm going to do it anyway. How did you start?
1: The, uh <laughs> I love that you use the word juxtaposition. Uh, that's exactly what it's like to sort of try and get a company off the ground and build it and the highs and lows, things that go great, things that are terrible. Um, it, I would even go as far as to say that sometimes it feels actually a little more schizophrenic than that. <laughs> it really does feel very split personality. Um, and, you know, in many ways, like starting a company is kind of irrational
0: Right? Tell me it's, more. How can you be irrational? All those entrepreneurs that are listening right now going, like, you think Bob's telling me I'm going to be irrational? Well,
1: usually, what happens is you've got a good job somewhere, you've been successful, and you're like, I'm going to quit that, go start a company that most likely will fail, and I'm going to work my tail off, and it's going to be awesome and miserable at the same time. <laughs> like, it is kind of an irrational thing to go do. Um, you know, but when you have an idea or just believe that something needs to exist and you want to go try and build it, you know, you just got to take the leap and go do it. Um, you know, when uh, AJ and Suresh, my two co-founders of Mobile Iron, um, approached me to join them as CEO in, uh, you know, 2007, I was at Cisco. My last company had been bought by Cisco and uh, I had a great job there actually. But when I saw the idea that Suresh and AJ were working on, I had this, oh, crap, I got to go do that reaction. And, you know, I left vested stock on the table. My Midwestern father executive thought I was crazy <laughs> leaving. And but sometimes you just got to go do it. And, uh, you know, it's an irrational act in some ways, but like many great things in life, you um, They often start with somewhat of an irrational act.
0: What were you most scared about? I mean, obviously, like leaving like all the stock options and the security, but sort of moving into that role as CEO in a startup is different to being part of a a big enterprise organization like Cisco. What was the thing that you'd say, that kept me up at night? You know, if there was one thing Uh, that I was really, yeah, going like, oh, crap. What was it? Yeah,
1: the thing I was most scared of, so rewind back to 2007, when I was uh, jumping into the chair with Suresh and AJ. The thing I was most scared of is failing as a first-time CEO.
0: Failing AJ and
1: Suresh as my co-founders, if I were not to be a good first-time CEO. You know, I'd never been a CEO before. It's sort of a big jump. It was a big, you know, compliment that they're willing to bring me on board. But I was scared that, man, my biggest fear was I actually... Don't do a good job as first-time CEO and actually screw up a perfectly good startup opportunity for these guys. Um, and you know, I actually spent some time trying to figure out how to answer that question. So um, I'm actually not sure if I've ever told this story before. But um, so I'm like, I'm probably like 40 something like that, and
0: young, like that, young. Yeah, yeah, it
1: depends on your point of view. No,
0: it's definitely <laughs> young in my books.
1: Uh, so I'm 40, you know, been an executive, never been a CEO. And I wanted to figure out, like, if I thought I could do a good job at this and not screw screw it up. And so one of the questions I asked myself was, would I be able to actually hire people more experienced, smarter, better at their jobs than I was?
0: Ooh. Because if I couldn't,
1: yep. like, then I actually wouldn't be a very good CEO, and you know, I would actually be a roadblock to the team. So, <laughs> isn't that hard respond.
0: though? But isn't that isn't that hard though, Bob? Don't you think that people find that hard to as much as they want to? Maybe that's one of the things that uh, leaders find difficult to be in that position where you're actually trying to hire and have talent that is better than you potentially. Do you think CEOs generally find that hard?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, and look, it's actually one of the key criteria of the job, right? Because in the beginning, it's just sort of you and a small team, but eventually the job shifts to be more like, you know, if you sort of do the analogy, like superhero analogy, the first CEO job is kind of like Captain America in the platoon of the woods or Wonder Woman in the platoon of the woods. It's like you and a small team, like banging in trees, getting punched and getting dirty. But then the CEO job turns into more like Captain America and the Avengers, where it's like you and a band of superheroes. And you have to be able to hire grade A superheroes who all have better superpowers than you. You you need a marketing superhero, product superhero, engineering superhero, a finance superhero. And they better be better at their jobs than you are. Otherwise, you're not hiring the right person. So I think one of the most important criteria for, you know, an early and mid-stage CEO is, can they hire people better than them? And, uh, you know, candidly, I was worried that I wasn't far enough along my career that I'd be able to do that. So um, I called one of my old colleagues. So uh, my previous company is one of my peer executives. He was the CFO, and I was the VP of his colleagues. name's Jim Buckley. And I called Jim. I said, hey, Jim, you know, we haven't talked in like a year, but I have an important question for you. And please be honest, because it affects other people. Um, and the question was, here's what I'm thinking about doing. I'm worried about not being able to hire, you know, strong executives at this point in my career. Uh, if I were to go do this, Jim, like, would you ever come work for me someday? And Jim's a super and super senior CFO. Mm-hmm. And Jim's like, yep, I would. I was like, seriously, Jim, please tell me because other people, like careers are on the line here. He said, no, yeah, I would. So that was one of the ways I went at least to try and figure out whether I thought I could hire people with more experience. than
0: It's a great Uh, litmus test, right? Because if people are willing to follow you, then that that says, hey, look, (sighs) you've got something that they want to be part of or you've got some capabilities that they really believe in. And or both, and more, right? So that's a great sort fellowship of litmus test for leaders to ask. It's a great question to go and actually solicit um, to ask. And here's people.
1: the here's the here's the the fun anecdote. There is that uh, six months later, Jim joined as our consulting CFO, and then actually became our full time CFO. And he and I worked together to build the company from zero to one hundred.
0: He made a good decision. There's a, there's a CFO that read that, right? And look, that it's, it's interesting as you talk about it. I mean, in, in, in change or be changed, I love that phrase. I use it a lot myself, um, is, is the fact that you, you actually bring to reality what happens with startups, right? That, that sort of when you start out as the three-person company, maybe the two-person company, to then suddenly growing. And that with that growth, not only is it company growth that happens, but there's also growth within the company itself, right? Whether it's the company culture, whether it's the people, whether it's the CEO role. And so tell us about that, because I think that there are some really interesting, I kind of likened it to, um, it's like, you know, it's a plant that's starting to grow, and you start kind of like, "Look at, look what I can do! I can like, I can grow all these great leaves, and now I'm growing all these flowers, and I'm like just flourishing." But, but actually, you need a lot around it as well as it grows because things change. So, when do you think like the first sort of aha moment comes in for a new CEO where they go, "Actually, it's not the same as it was when I first took this on. I need to think differently. I need to be different." Um, from your own experience, when's that first sort of, I don't know, transition, uh, if you The like, first happen?
1: time that hits is at about 50 people, is in my experience. And, you know, this, you know, the book Change or Be Changed, like many things, sort of the inspiration for that was born from a frustration, like many things. And what frustrated me having been a first time CEO and being in the fortunate position to be part of a company that, you know, we grew from, you know, zero to a thousand people is that I don't feel like I was very well prepared for how the CEO job was going to change as the company changed, right? As we grew from zero to 50, 50 to 150, 150 to 450, 450 to a thousand, like the company changed. And as a result, my job as CEO changed. It's not like I woke up one day with a different title. It's like, you know, I'm still the CEO, but my job's different. And I didn't feel like anybody kind of sat me down and said, "Hey, Bob, as your job changes, I'm sorry, as your company changes, your job changes, so therefore you have to change." And I mean, why
0: would you? Right? You were successful. What you were doing was bringing success. Why would you exactly. need to change? Exactly. That's,
1: that's the irony of it. Is that 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 what? What I discovered the hard way is that, you know, the very things that actually helped make me successful in sort of the first CEO stage become the very things that sort of hold me back, get in my way and screw things up at the next. And so to answer your question, like what made me start to realize, uh oh, this is not working was I started to fail at things. Things stopped working that used to work. Like it's kind of weird when all of a sudden you're like the things that used to work suddenly stop working, and it's kind of maddening actually. (laughs) You go like uh, it must be
0: somebody else. It can't be me, can it? Because like, look, I started the company. I got it going. Like, so what else is going on in this environment that is causing this? Yeah,
1: sometimes that's the reaction. Okay, maybe it's the environment. Um, I think you know one of the more important characteristics of a CEO that is particularly a first timer is a little bit of self awareness because yeah when something's not going right it's sort of like a parent like you know if your kids are acting out like you can blame it on the kids or often you got to kind of look in the mirror and be like what am i doing that's contributing to this situation like it's kind of the same thing when you're a ceo like something's not going right in the company sometimes it's the situation of the team or the company or sometimes it's you so you got to look in the mirror and be like what am i doing to contribute to this situation and i'll give you a really specific <laughs> example so when when mobile iron got to about fifty people, um, you know, two things changed that suddenly what used to work stopped working. So the first thing was when we grew from like forty five to fifty five people, I felt like we got worse. You think when you add people, you get better, mm-hmm. but there's this weird organizational breakpoint where at like fifty people. Like the human brain loses its ability to track one-to-one connections. And all of a sudden, what used to work sort of organically just started failing. Like I remember my customer success team and my QA team that used to organically be able to stay in touch on customer issues. Now we're like dropping balls between them. I'm like, what happened? We actually hired more people. We should be getting better. The irony was, as we got bigger, like the way we used to behave and that applied to the team. It also applied to me. That that was about when, like, look, and like a lot of founding CEOs in tech, like, I was sort of a product customer person. Like, I like spending time on product and customers, and I was reasonably good at it. And that was what was important in the very beginning of the company, zero to 50 people because you're just trying to survive. You're just trying to find some customers and sort of prove that you have a business that's worth getting more capital. But then once we started winning some early customers and started to grow that I kept spending my time on product and customer stuff, which is fine. But my team, and I give them huge credit for this, basically sat me down and was like, hey, Bob, we are not getting from you what we need. Like, we need you to be the CEO of the whole company, not just product stuff and customer stuff.
0: And that was kind of
1: a wake-up call for me, right? That, like... The things that I was gravitating towards because that's what the company needed and I was good at, like I had to change my behavior to be the CEO of the whole company. Like, what are we doing on go to market? What are we doing on team? What are we doing on finance? Like, I needed to be thinking across all the different swim lanes of the business, not just spending time in sort of my comfort zone that I had gotten good at over the last year and a
0: half as we were sort of getting the company off the ground. So let me just ask about that. You know, that's quite brave of your organization to actually confront you with that. You know, there are often sort of yes, situations was. that you wouldn't find that even in a small startup, even if they'd known you for a long time. What, what do you think it was that...
1: What enabled that? Yeah.
0: You know, what was your like secret sauce that um, enabled people to, to sort of like stare you in the face and go, hey, you know, take a look in the mirror. You might not like what you see, but you need to hear this. What, what do you think it was?
1: So there were two things. Uh, one was culture. That in the very beginning of getting mobile iron off the ground, we sat down a team. It was just actually the three core founders. The second meeting we had as a team was what type of culture do we want to have as a company? And one of the things that was important to us was a concept we called intellectual honesty. Mm-hmm which is, hey, celebrate the good, but it's okay to talk about the bad. And uh, we had sort of built that into the culture where it's okay to sort of, you know, put a stinker on the table and say, this isn't working or something's broken or this is not going well. And it's okay to do that. Um, So I think culturally the team was wired and, you know, we had made it safe to sort of talk about the bad stuff. The second thing that enabled that conversation and that feedback from the team to me was that I regularly asked my team for feedback on me. Like I'd be like, Hey, do you have any feedback for me? What can I be doing better than I'm not doing? And at first they're like, yeah, 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 whatever. We're not going to (laughs) really tell you (laughs) like what we really think.
0: But eventually
1: if you sort of keep asking the question and they give you tough feedback the key is how you react as a ceo and leader like if you get defensive or try and debate it with them they're just not going to give you that real feedback anymore you just kind of have to take it and it's uncomfortable but that's sort of the point is you want that uncomfortable feedback and i think you know there had been a couple cases leading up to that where you know the team had given me some tough feedback and I wasn't defensive about it I sort of took it in stride and said okay thank you very much let me see if I can do better and I think that gave them the permission to have sort of the bigger conversation with me that led to that, hey, we're not getting from you what we need.
0: Right. There are also some other sort of very powerful CEO lessons, or if you like, almost like a playbook that you lay out from your own experience. You know, you talk about this, you know, of like they were saying like, hey, get out the way, but there is a period where. The skills that you had, you said, you know, I, I like the product, I like the customers. That's where I like, kind of like, I'm in my zone, right? That's my, that's my comfort space. But actually, as your company grew, not only did you have to change, you had to potentially, you know, not do things that you were previously doing. And you and you talk about this concept of unlearning, which in today's world I think is so important for organisations. When when organisations are faced with an uh, unpredictable world. Right. there's lots of uncertainties often what companies do and and CEOs and senior leaders do is fall back on the tried and tested ways of doing things but actually in today's world what we need to do is almost as you describe it so you were ahead of your time shall we say in, in sort of describing you have to almost unlearn and that sort of almost sounds like why would we want to do that why would we need to unlearn everything that's brought us success in the past and it's proven to be a winning formula. Isn't that scary? Are you like going to press the pit and like, oh, my God, I've like got to unlearn everything. What's going to happen? Everything's going to fall apart. But yet it seems to me a very important capability. So tell me what that feels like from a CEO perspective.
1: Yeah, this this concept of unlearning was a key aha for me. And, you know, going back to sort of the frustration that led to the inspiration for the book, Change or Be Changed. like. The theme actually is unlearning. And the common thread for me across all these changes in my job as CEO uh, was unlearning. You know, I think, particularly in Silicon Valley, like we spend a lot of time talking about what do we need to learn? 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 That's super important. But we do not, I think, in the entrepreneurial community spend enough time talking about what do we need to unlearn? And That was sort of my key aha as a CEO, as my company changed, my job changed. That I had to learn some new things, but actually the bigger challenges for me was actually unlearning the old things that actually made me successful before that I had to stop doing. And you know, there's a there were sort of three very distinct stages for me at Mobile Iron and going from zero to a thousand people. So the first CEO job I had. Uh, was sort of like I said, sort of like Captain America or Wonder Woman in the Platoon in the Woods. Like you're like, it's you and a bunch of people like throwing punches, getting punched, getting dirty, like digging ditches. It's a blast. But then the CEO job changed and it became more like Captain America and the Avengers where it's like you and your band of superheroes, each of whom has a better superpower than you. And I had to unlearn being sort of the, the center and learn to lead through others, hire great executives and let go. Otherwise, like grade A superheroes aren't going to come work for you. If you do, they're going to quit. So, you know, I had to learn how to let go and unlearn sort of this skill I had learned about sort of being the the battlefield commander.
0: So practically, what does that look like, though? Like letting go, like in practical terms, if you were to give advice to people, what does that... Look like? What did you have to do or what did you put in place that meant you did let go? That's a
1: great question. Um, The key thing was, number one, getting really clear about what goals are for the company and for the teams. Because the way you let go is rather than doing it yourself and being involved in anything, you set clear goals for the company and set clear goals for your executives with them. And if you have the right goals and people are executing against your goals, that is like the first step to letting go. Um, the second key piece for me in letting go was building uh, like an operational execution cadence. Because <laughs> when you're a small team, like 50 people, things are kind of organized organically. You had to get, instead of being organic, we had to be much more organized. So we created an execution cadence. And it sounds kind of silly, but like, in like young early stage companies, everybody hates meetings. We work to do. We don't want any meetings. Yeah, right. But what starts to happen is you actually really do need to bring people together to actually talk about things and work on things and resolve issues and deal with things. So, you know, we built an operational cadence where it's like, all right, we're setting goals on a quarterly basis. We have weekly staff meetings every week. We have morning scrums every day at eight thirty. Uh, we do quarterly offsites to talk about what's going well, what's not going well. We have a way to deal with issues, just building some of that operational musculature. Doesn't have to be heavyweight, just lightweight stuff, but just building a little bit of that operational musculature so that the team has an execution cadence that doesn't require me, the CEO, to be in the middle of it.
0: Why do you think? So
1: those two. Th- Sorry, those two things enabled me to like. Yeah.
0: Why and do you think? It was that still co-
1: scary though. To yeah. Be fair. Like you're like ah, what if it doesn't work? Right.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I think it's like something that you see a lot of. You know, in my experience working with startups and advising them, as soon as you mention something around putting some structure or process or some discipline, it's like you know you've grown foreheads. And, like, you're yeah. a monster. Like, what are you doing in this building? You were supposed to be yeah, here the to help to us, right? Too much. You have
1: right. to do just enough to solve the problem you need to solve without sort of going all bureaucratic, right? Because yeah. that's everybody's fear is that you suddenly go from being the 50-person startup to all of a sudden you're behaving like a thousand.
0: Yeah. You used like, a term, that, that would be miserable. Yeah. <laughs> you used the term, like, driving eye contact, which I thought was a really um, powerful way to describe sort of how you – I guess, brought some of that operational cadence um, to the organization and, and sort of unlearned how you were doing things and, and, and learned to do things differently in a way. But describe that for the listeners because I do think, like it, you know, it, it sort of conjures up different images as to what it would look like, but it, I think it's quite a powerful way to say how do you, as you grow as an organization, not lose sight of what's important, but as you say, not, you know, focus on the right things in a way, I guess.
1: Yeah, so that it's, you know, as a founding CEO, where I was used to being in the middle of everything to now all of a sudden I need to let go, like, you know, what we did, like I said, is we put goals in place and put an operational cadence in place. And it wasn't heavy. It was sort of lightweight. But if you really sort of went inside my soul at that point, and I think other executives at that stage, like, the reason why letting go is hard is because you're scared it might not work. Yeah. So you of need to come up with this like trust, but verify model. Like how do you let go and give your team room to run and give your great executives room to do their jobs, but have enough visibility that you at least can tell if something's going off track. Like, how do you build that sort of, what does that trust, but verify model look like? And it's gotta be sort of light and easy to use and just sort of intuitive for everybody. And, that's where we came up with this concept of eye contact and what it was, was that with each executive, you develop your goals. Yeah, you know, what are the goals? Um, what are the issues that they need help resolving and what are the resources they have? And you basically end up with these goals. You get some measures. There's some resources. It's like this input and output sheet that was just like one page and each exec had one. And it became a little bit like me and them having eye contact on what the expectations are, what are the resources they have, and what are the things they need help on. And it's just sort of what teams do when you're being organized about you know, setting goals and executing. But it turned out to be a really powerful tool for me to let go because that way I felt like we had agreement on what the goals and mission were they had agreement on what resources they had to get there. And we had agreement on what the metrics were to measure it. And that made all of us feel a lot more comfortable that they could just run and go do their jobs. And, you know, there are enough metrics and visibility for me to be able to trust them to do their job, but verify if something was awry, I would at least know before it got too far right. off, off track.
0: So let's talk about another piece of this kind of unlearning and uh, the change. The one that I find CEOs and and leaders in general find really hard is that actually as the company grows as you say like different skills and different capabilities are needed there's often some changes therefore or unlearning that the people within the organization need to do as well right and yet that's often the, one of the most difficult challenges to making sure you've got the right capabilities when you need them um from when you started to where you're going in your journey. And it's one that CEOs, I think, struggle with a lot, you know, to get that balance right. What, what's your take on that?
1: Yeah, so, you know, the irony is that, you know, the CEO is going through their own unlearning journey. You know, like I said, sort of the early CEO jobs, kind of like Captain America or Wonder Woman. The second CEO job is more like the Avengers. The third CEO job which we can talk about later is more like Professor Xavier in the X-Men where you're like the dean of the university. And like you have to do a lot fewer things for a lot more people and repeat yourself over and over and over and over again, me nuts. So there's like three very different CEO jobs. Now, the interesting thing is the exact same thing is true for the team too. So like a VP of sales goes through three very different jobs and in each transition they have to in many ways unlearn their old role and learn the new one so for instance like the VP of sales like in the beginning is more like a Davy Crockett sort of explorer type character like a frontiersman or frontierswoman it has to sort of find the path through the woods to go get early revenue the second VP of sales job is more like you know Braveheart or Joan of Arc like this battlefield warrior commander rallying the troops to take on the enemy. And uh, the third VP of sales job is more like Eisenhower in world war II, where you actually fight the war from the war room rather than the battlefield. And, you know, each one of the, and the same thing happens to the CFO, the same thing happens to the head of marketing, the same thing happens to the head of engineering. They each end up having as their job changes, like they have to change sort of how they behave and how they run themselves and how they run their teams. And you know, the same way sort of I struggled going through each one of these transitions, it's a tough transition for the team to go through their own unlearning exercise. And the way this often comes home to roost is um, you know, as a CEO, you want to help your team through these changes. And You know, the most important part about unlearning is sort of recognizing that there's a need to change, that, hey, my job's changing. The second thing is understand what the new job looks like. So you've got a pretty clear idea about, you know, for the VP of sales, for instance, what the Braveheart job looks like or the Eisenhower job looks like. And then the third thing is you have to unlearn your old job and learn the new one. And you have to go through sort of the fear and insecurity that comes from letting go of what actually made you good and comfortable and all of a sudden going to do things that you don't know how to do very well. Like is a really uncomfortable emperor has no clothes moment
0: Mm -hmm. and
1: every executive goes through the same thing. And uh, you know, the toughest situations I think for CEOs are when you have a leader who has been a superhero, like a real contributor to the company, like help, really build their team and their part of the business into what it needed to become, But then they're starting to hit a wall that they seem to not be able to unlearn their own role and learn the next role. And when that happens, you have like leaders that go from being superheroes to being like mere mortals where suddenly they're struggling, they're failing, they're thrashing. And those are some of the toughest situations for CEOs because If you bring on a leader and it's just not working, that's kind of easier to deal with. The ones that are much harder to deal with is when you had somebody who's really crushed it and been a total superhero for the company that is not succeeding in unlearning their old role and learning the the role the company needs them to serve next. And uh, those are the toughest ones.
0: What's your take on uh, for organizations based on the experience that you've had of the number of, you know, percentage wise, how often do you think that that happens? Because, you know, it i mean it's going to happen there's no doubt about it that there that there's going to be a stage where somebody potentially cannot take it to the next level as the the evolution evolves because it requires a different capability of, of being able to learn and unlearn things that they have sort of held digged. In, in your experience is that like you hmm. know like 20% Good of question. the team or like 50% like how would like yeah the so the, the size problem,
1: problem arises 100% of the time like every leader that's part of a growing organization will run into this
0: channel. Okay. I'll just like want all oh, I,
1: I asking is like, yeah. how many of them actually succeed in making the leap?
0: Yeah. But I also yeah. am going to say to our listeners, I want them to replay what you just said, because, you know, I think too often they don't hear that message that you're going to oh, get that, it a hundred percent. of This happens time.
1: 100% okay. of the time.
0: There we go. <laughs> we Just want to make sure that they all hear that because I think, uh, honestly, it's such an important learning, but but yeah, yeah, it's
1: yeah. Oh, yeah. It and if it's not happening, it's a sign that something's wrong. Yep. Actually, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the but, yeah, you're asking a good question, which is you know, because it happens 100 of the time, then the question becomes how many leaders actually then adapt themselves to be able to their old Um, that's a good question. I'm not sure I have a good answer right off the top of my head. Yeah. Um, I what? don't know. It's probably to sixty percent, like somewhere in there, it's yeah. I like would it's not.
0: I would have gone around forty. I, yeah, yeah, like um, rule of thumb, yeah, like they, instinct wise, not like based on like research, but, but yeah, just based on my and, own sort of experience.
1: And you know, I think it's also a useful question to ask, like why? Yeah, <laughs> like why is it forty percent, not eighty percent, or forty percent, not twenty percent? I think that you know, for some CEOs and some leaders. You know, as the job starts to change because the company is changing, um, sometimes there are leaders that have been really successful getting the company from A to B, but when they look at the next job that's going from B to C, that's not really a job they want to do. That they would rather, frankly, leave the company and go somewhere else and do the A to B thing again. And that's totally okay. Right. There are some people that are just like, man, I'm really good at this stage. I really have fun at this stage. The next job actually isn't that fun for me. So, you know, the right answer may be for them to leave and go do it again somewhere else. Um, You know, the, the most important question I found was like asking the executive, like, hey, look, here's what the new role looks like. Do you want like to be that leader <laughs> and it takes a certain level of intellectual honesty for them to be able to say, yes, I do. And I want to unlearn and get there. Or other times they'd be like, yeah, you know, that doesn't actually sound that fun. <laughs> um, and I think that's the core choice that's underneath that success or failure rate Yeah, it requires a certain level of self-awareness, uh, requires a certain level of, uh, willingness to set their ego aside and, uh, you know, a desire to actually, you know, succeed in that next role and what that job requires. You know, it's as the job changes, like, you know, whether it's the VP of engineering job or the CFO job or the CEO job, like, you know, for some people, that next job actually isn't that fun. And maybe the right answer is for them to go somewhere else and do it again.
0: I think, again, that's another piece of really valuable advice that there's almost this sort of, you know, unconscious pressure that you should you should want to do the next. Yes, job you're or the a failure if you don't. Yeah.
1: You know, yeah. aspire to take on the next big job. Yeah, and I think that's totally wrong.
0: <laughs> yeah, totally. So, you know, you, we often like um, inadvertently put people in situations where they you know are are in situations where they're not going to be successful like which is not a good place to put people right ideally you want people to be giving their best and providing their best by putting them in the positions where they can be their best not by letting them believe that that you know the only way is up kind of thing because that's not always the case so uh, again it's it's really helpful insights i think that you you provide you've talked a bit about obviously like the changes as a as a ceo and and you know the one i am going to come back on and, and obviously for for individuals and that applies as well um and we'll take it to the team level um next yep. but just before we do there's there's a that the theme that sort of has come through and you've said it a couple of times and i think it is something that we've yet to really embed in in Sort of leaders across the board is this kind of self reflection and self awareness. Amen. Right? It takes courage, doesn't it? You have to be pretty bold to be able to be self reflective and be self aware, don't you?
1: Uh, it is uncomfortable, right? You know, self, you know, if you look at like lots of people talk about sort of the skills of a CEO. Like, you know, you need to be a good communicator, you need to be an executor, good strategy, good vision. Like, the you know, and those are all super important. Don't get me wrong. Um, but interestingly, the things that people don't talk about as much is sort of more like the soul of being a CEO. And, you know, number one on that list for me is actually self-awareness. Um, because, you know, looking in the mirror... Is inherently uncomfortable for a person uh, or a team to look in the mirror and to be honest about like what's going right and what's not going right. And but yet yeah, that's actually the only way people and organizations actually right. learn and unlearn is to actually look in the mirror and to be honest about what they see. And so I do think that self awareness. Is sort of the key ingredient to creating that feedback loop that allows people to unlearn and learn, and organizations to unlearn and learn.
0: So what but it's would, uncomfortable. Yeah, it,
1: it you know it is uncomfortable. It requires you to be vulnerable and um, be willing to sort of admit that you don't know or you're not doing things well. Um, but I found that there's sort of an odd duality that. By willing to be self-aware and being willing to be vulnerable, it actually, up to a point, gives your team confidence in you because they look and say that person's actually thinking, willing to change. They're not just hurtling down the tracks blindly, like they're willing to adapt and learn. And so oddly, sort of a little bit of vulnerability and some self-awareness feels like weakness in the moment. But for the people watching you, it's actually the exact opposite. Why do you think, think that that's is? A, that's what? a very powerful. Yeah. Lesson.
0: Why do you think that is? That it's like like it's almost like you know that's a skill that we need like like a I don't know like a mental model that we need to like unlearn, right? Because it is this belief that somehow it's a weakness, and you know we you know we we've all thought it. You know, I've been in exec positions myself and gone like, oh my god, like you know, if I if I basically sort of show this level of vulnerability if i admit that i don't know yeah, or i'm not like, being very you know, good like, at this. Uh, like, yeah, like uh, you know um but yeah it's an interesting
1: it is and there's a balance there right i mean you can become so self-aware and be so vulnerable that you actually become sort of a mushy yeah. inept ineffective leader that like is like Constantly in your own kitchen, yeah. Right, you can't yep. look. Like, you can't go that far. You can't
0: do too but much like, navel gazing. So, like, like, yeah, no, exactly, yep. right.
1: But like, yep. you know, being able to look in the mirror and be clinical about what's going well and what's not going well is like the most important thing about unlearning and learning. And, you know, it does require some vulnerability. It does create insecurity. And I think, in a weird way, you kind of get used to it. Like after you sort of go through that a couple times, like it's a lot less scary. And in a weird way, it's kind of empowered and um you know like a lot of things in life if it's uncomfortable it means you're on the right track.
0: <laughs> and what do you think about leaders today? I mean like in this like this crisis that we're in right now with the coronavirus. We're seeing sort of leaders demonstrate a very different side of them today than we particularly necessarily seen you know, in general around leaders of big corporations and how they are, um, taking much more of a forward, I'd say purposeful role in not just their organization, but around some global issues. That is a part of that sort of humility and, and almost that like self-awareness that their role is much bigger. Yeah, you hit on the Do right
1: you, word, which is humility. Like there's, this is a little bit of a Bob Tinker theme here. So look, there are going to be people who may disagree with me, but, um, I believe ego is the ultimate enemy of leadership.
0: Oh, see, we're like, you know, we are just like on par, my friend. We are on right? par. Then yeah. be,
1: if it's about your ego, it's about you, yeah. not the mission. Yeah. And I think that's when you really see different leaders behave differently. In yeah. situations, you can tell, is it about them or is it about the mission? And it really comes down to their ego.
0: So how and do you it, stop? it? So a great, a great, like sort of insight, but, what you tend to find with a lot of CEOs, not because they choose to, they start out like that, right? Saying like, "Oh, my big ego, like, like I'm the mo- I'm the most perfect person." Look at all the success, but success breeds more success, which then breeds affirmation of what you're doing, and then some. Yep, like, and, then, what and as things as get your, bigger and bigger yeah. and bigger,
1: people are a lot less likely to give you
0: yeah so how do you You get this like echo
1: chamber of your own genius
0: yeah how do you stop that (laughs) happening right how do you how do you help leaders i mean clearly you you are doing that through some of the practices how do you how do you stop them almost like i guess help them unlearn that that just because of that success that they don't like i guess internalize it so much that their ego personal ego becomes the driving force versus what they started out with which was an an ego to do something better, bigger, greater, um, and achieve some end goal, right? Most entrepreneurs start out with an idea of wanting to change something or do something different or bring that forward.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I'm not sure I really thought about that. Let me think about that for a second. Um, I think the most important thing is that if there going to be one thing that I could sort of magically weigh my wand in situations like that, that I think might be an antidote for this tendency as leaders become successful and things get bigger, that they get less candid feedback and sort of get an echo chamber of their own genius, which becomes a self-fulfilling negative prophecy, um, is that leaders ask the people around them for feedback about what they mm-hmm. need to be doing differently or better. I think if a leader is constantly or regularly asking, hey, what do I need to be doing better or what do I need to be doing differently? If they ask that question regularly, they will get enough feedback that will start to give them some signals that aren't just confirmatory. But there needs the leader needs to surround themselves with people who are willing to give them that feedback too and not just be sort of sycophants. that yep. tell them whatever they want to hear so i think it's a combination of leaders asking for critical feedback and leaders having the courage to surround themselves with people who are strong enough to give them that feedback
0: i think that's great advice again you know if, if, if to you know potential aspiring ceos and actually you know successful ceos today is make sure you've got like that kind of um, strategic advisory group, whatever you want to call them, but those really honest feedback um, oh, it's coaches around uncomfortable. Him,
1: right? Let me tell you, like when your team comes in, sits down, or when your team says, hey, Bob, like this is not go well, we need this from you, we're not getting it. Like it's not comfortable and uh, it's not fun, right? But trust me, I've been fun. there.
0: Yeah. I've got those scars too. I'm like, can they turn it at me? Oh, oh yeah, that, yep, they are. And I'm like, yeah, I can see that now, Yeah it's a constant and it's a constant sort of, as you say, it's a constant self-reflection. It's a constant. Yeah. Sort of and view. you can build
1: that into your culture, by the way, right? Cause this can't just be about like the relationship between the CEO and the executive team. Like yeah. this needs to happen everywhere inside the company.
0: So let's right? talk so, a little bit about culture, right? Because it's my hotspot, right? I'm passionate about culture and yeah, I feel people don't give it enough credence in terms of like, the glue that it is to organizations. You oh talk God. about it a lot. Yeah, no, it's so uh, it's a great like one to you, like bring to the fore that that actually how important it is. So why from your perspective, why is it important?
1: Well, like I think culture is the soul of the company. And like, if you think about your exec your team is kind of the brain, your product is kind of your muscles, but your culture is the company's soul. And you know, culture is what holds a team together through good times and bad. Culture is what enables, you know, people on a team to make decisions um, without having the CEO or leaders involved in everything. It's how you actually create, like, productive, distributed action. Um, and interestingly, and I only sort of found this out later, like as the company goes through these learning and unlearning moments, the culture actually ends up being sort of the fabric that holds that together during those (laughs) tough times of change. And, you know, I think, and I found this, that a lot of early stage entrepreneurs and founders find cult, they know it's really important, but they also find sort of, discussions around culture, sort of frustratingly vague. And, um, you know, I had a couple experiences on this one, which may be useful. Um, The first thing is like asking yourself, where does culture come from? And a lot of companies, you know, just let culture sort of evolve organically. Because by the time you get to sort of 20 or 30 people, you kind of have a culture. It just evolves organically. Mm -hmm. Or you can actually take a much more proactive approach to say, Hey, what do we want our culture to be? Define it and drive to that. I personally am a much bigger fan of that because then you can be explicit. You can drive towards it. You can get agreement on what it is. Um, AJ Suresh and I at the beginning of mobile iron, the very, I think it was the second meeting we had as a team was what do we want the culture to be? And but that brings up sort of a second thing that I think a lot of founders and entrepreneurs struggle with is when you start having this culture conversation, it turns into this super frustrating, vague buzzword game, innovation, integrity, like, you know, like those posters yeah, that hang yeah. on the wall in gyms, yep. like they're like, you know, an eagle soaring with innovation or a race car, like, you know, two hands shaking you know, integrity, like, nobody knows what that stuff means and it's totally unactionable. So like, I think like a lot of founders and early stage teams get frustrated defining culture because they end up in this like, like baloney gym poster buzzword bingo, like exercise of just going up to the whiteboard and writing all these silly words on the table or on the whiteboard. So that's not culture. Like that's like buzzwords. The culture needs to be sort of real words that, mean things to people that they can actually do something with. And uh, we stumbled on one really powerful question that helped catalyze sort of what I thought was a pretty productive culture definition. And it's a good way to avoid sort of the baloney Jim Poster conversation. But the one question was, let's talk about the places we've worked in the past. What did we like about the culture and what did we not like about the culture? Love it. And that got really concrete really quickly rather than sort of this baloney buzzword game. Yeah. It got really concrete about things that worked, things that didn't work. And it sort of developed like this mosaic of all these different like concepts that started to glue together into like, ah, yeah, this kind of feels like who we want to be. But then it gets really personal really quickly because whatever that culture is, it's got to line up with the core early leaders and team because, like, it emanates from the team. And if it doesn't feel natural, it's not going to hold up. So there's an element of really personalizing that so that it feels real and actionable for the team. Um, We had five things on our culture list, and they literally held up pretty intact for, like, the first five or six years of the company. What's interesting though is as the company really started to grow, we had to go back and sort of tune our culture statement
0: mm-hmm.
1: because some of the things that were there before started to not work as well. And interestingly, there were like new things about our culture that we didn't anticipate that sort of evolved.
0: Already. That's interesting. The culture that. isn't
1: like this rigid stone brick foundation, it's actually more like a flexible fabric yep. that sort of stretches and evolves over time.
0: Oh, that's that's again, like really sort of like visually, I could just see how it. How it plays out as a, an organization grows and changes over time. Bob, there are so many more things that we could like cover. I feel like we've literally just touched the surface of what is, you know, a whole realm of expertise and really sound advice that so many leaders can learn from today. Not just people that are in startups, but just leaders in general of corporations and 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 membership organizations and institutions that could get. But and um, we're not going to have time to go through all of those. And so maybe you'll come back and we can talk about some of those things um, on it. another bo- podcast. But before we end, there's one question that I always ask all my guests, which is what's your daring to moment. So, you know, this is about people that dare to do, dare to be different, dare to see differently, dare to challenge and push the boundaries. What's your daring to moment. Do you think in your career?
1: I think, uh, The dare to moment for me was that decision to take a leap out of Cisco and go try being a first time CEO, even though I wasn't sure I was going to be able to do it. It was uh, December 2007. I remember it vividly.
0: There you go. There's There's a great, you know, if you are sitting there right now and working for a big corporation thinking like, I just heard enough to make me want to go do it. There you go. You just heard it, and you can see the success. So, Bob, thank you so much for being on a, on our show. If people want to know more thank about you, you, want to find out about your book, uh, what's the best way for them to get in contact with you? Websites, uh, LinkedIn. Yeah, so the uh,
1: we have a website for the two books, SurvivalToThrival dot uh, So you can go learn more about the books, and there's um, content about the books available there, and a lot of the tools that are in the books that you know founders and entrepreneurs and execs can use uh, to contact me, I'm on LinkedIn. So feel free to hit me up on LinkedIn.
0: Great. And you can find us, you'll hear all about where you can get in contact with us as we close out this show. Um, but I'm on Twitter at Rita underscore Trahan and obviously in Dare Worldwide, but you can find out more about us. But if you do like this podcast, then please leave your comments and, and listen in for more. Thank you very much, Bob. Thank you, Rita thanks for listening enjoyed the conversation make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes of daring 2 also check out our website dareworldwife.com for some great resources around business in general leadership and how to bring about change see you next time